purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Lee Daniel Kravitz. Kravitz has a master's degree in counseling psychology, is a graduate at the University of Missouri Columbia School of Journalism, and has written for Psychology Today, The Huffington Post, and The New York Times. Lee Daniel Kravitz is here today to talk about a book he co-authored with psychologist David Feldman entitled Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success. Welcome to Health Watch, Lee Daniel Kravitz. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. So why don't you introduce our listeners to the genesis of this project that you wrote with David Feldman? Sure, sure. So um, David Feldman is a, uh, a, a psychology researcher. He focuses on health. And, uh, I'm sorry, and, and hope, and hope psychology. And um, I came about the subject matter a little bit differently. I am a journalist, um, and I have a master's degree in psychology, as you mentioned. Um, and at the age of 28, I actually became a, a, a cancer survivor. And when I was coming out of that experience, I remember looking around, becoming very in, intensely interested and focused on the ways that people bounce back after trauma. Um, not just with cancer, but, but beyond, uh, people who survive car accidents, natural disasters, um, you know, genocide, things like that. And, uh, it turns out that, you know, while many, many people, uh, suffer the negative effects of trauma, like depression and anxiety and things like that, and, and PTSD, um, more actually, uh, don't just bounce back, they bounce forward, they change their lives dramatically as a result of having survived a, a traumatic experience. And so we decided to, to take a look at the research, and we started looking into something called post-traumatic growth. And we can talk a little bit about that if you like. Yeah, I would love to. I mean, one of my favorite chapters at the beginning sort of unpacks what hope is versus positive thinking, and that they're not the same thing. Can can you Can you dissect that a little sure. bit for us and how actually some sometimes actually the feeling of groundlessness or disorientation or the lack of positive feelings can actually be a advantageous thing after trauma it's kind of a counterintuitive thing isn't it it's, it's a little strange i remember when i was you know going through treatment and many of the survivors that that dave and i spoke to um regardless of what experiences they had most people found that the majority of their friends and family, the people who love them and support them, would come to them early on and say, just keep on thinking positively. You know, good things are going to happen as long as you just keep on thinking positively. And, you know, that becomes kind of a problem. You know, uh, what happens if you're just not a very positive kind of person? And so the logic goes something like this. If you believe that positive thinking will lead to positive results, the negative thinking must also lead to negative results. But what if you're thinking positively and bad things continue to happen to you? Does that mean it's your fault that you aren't thinking positively enough, that you are bringing this trauma, these negative things, onto yourself? And that's a really dangerous way to, a dangerous path to start walking down. It gives the, the mind a lot more power than it actually deserves. So we asked... Um, you know, there was a, a guy that we met named Alan Locke, and he went blind at the age of 25. He was uh, in the uh, 
the British Marines. And, uh, you know, he, he lost his eyesight, and all he really wanted to do was be in the Marines, and he wanted to have his eyesight back, and he was going to lose both of these things as a result of, of this of macular degeneration. Um, but you cut to a couple of years later, and he became the first blind person to row across the Atlantic Ocean blind. And we asked him how he did this, and he said, well, everybody said, think positively. You know, you can get you." You know, you may not lose your uh, all of your vision. You may not lose your position in the military, but you, um, you know, you may not. Uh, you know, you may be able to actually row across the Atlantic Ocean like you, you you set out to do. And he said, you know, the thing was, it wasn't positive thinking that did it. It was something called grounded thinking, or something that we call grounded hope. Um, and so, grounded hope is the idea that you you bravely look at your situation um, without pinning a smiley face on it. You say, look, this is a reality. You know, I, I don't have my vision anymore. I, I've lost a leg in a car accident. Um, I lost my family to, to, to the Rwandan genocide. There's nothing I can do that can bring them back, any of these things back. That's the grounded reality of it. But then you take it to that next step. You say, okay, now that I know what I can't do, let me look at the possibilities, the things that I think I can do. And that leads people to really, again, bounce forward after trauma. It, it was really interesting how you uh, talk about how one of the possible downsides of positive thinking is that we might not take the uh, appropriate action given our circumstance, which you just mentioned. I really love the story about the the swimmer Martin who had leukemia. I think yeah. he's an Olympic swimmer who ends up with a uh, 30% survival rate. And instead of thinking positively, he... He knows that he could die at any time and starts setting small goal after small goal, but ends up with a very big result. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. You know, here's a guy who um, was actually compared quite a bit to uh, Lance Armstrong, because that, you, know, uh, you know, once you hear what, you know, how his story ends, you'll see the parallel. Um, but he came out and said, please don't ever compare me to Lance Armstrong. And again, this is back when Lance Armstrong was, you know, the hero to many, many people who had survived cancer and gone on to win the Tour de France seven times. Um, Martin was a, a swimmer. Um, he enjoyed swimming. And then he was diagnosed really young as, uh, with leukemia. And he was, like you said, was given a, a 30% chance of, of surviving. And he found that in the cancer ward, just like in, in competitive swimming, there are not a lot of very realistic people. And for him, what he decided to do was not think positively, not think, okay, if I just keep, you know, maintain hope, I'm going to survive. Um, he took little incremental steps. He did the, the, you know, the chemotherapy. He did um, the radiation. He did the, um, uh, you know, the bone marrow transplant. And it wasn't positive thinking that got him through this. It was actually working day by day, day setting little goals um, just to feel good. You know, my goal today is to feel better than I did yesterday. You know, those sorts of things. And then ultimately, um, he was on the side of, you know, the side of the statistics that, um, you know, showed that he was actually going to survive. He survived. But then he took that philosophy of setting small incremental goals. And when he slipped back into the swimming pool, he decided, you know what? I'm going to do, kind of employ that same methodology to uh, to see how far I can go. Let's see what can happen. And he started swimming and started taking, uh, doing more and more races, never wanting more than just to win that one race. And he uh, and he knew he wasn't a str- the strongest swimmer, and he knew he wasn't the best performer. And yet 
he wound up winning a gold medal in the Olympics a couple of years ago, and that was he, he really attributes this grounded hope, this grounded way of thinking. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lee Daniel Kravitz about the book he co-authored, Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success. So, so Lee, there's a chapter in Super Survivors called The Truth of Illusion about how people um, who act as if there is – as if the risk they're taking isn't a risk at all, sort of a, a willful denial or a willful uh, delusion around their circumstance can also lead to successful outcomes. And that, that seems to directly contradict what we just talked about. And I'm curious if, if um, it's just a, different strategies that work for different people. You know, it's a very good point. And frankly, when Dave and I were – Writing this, you know, we kept on coming, running into this. Some people would say, I just, I, thought, I looked at my situation very, you know, with a grounded, realistic view. And yet, you know, they say that's on the one side of the mouth. And the other side of the mouth, they would say things like, yeah, but, you know, the thing I'm doing now, um, you know, I, I knew that I could do it. And this is where the whole dichotomy between, uh, between the words grounded and hope come into play. So you're right. It, it is, it's a little bit of a tricky thing. But the gist of it is this. Everybody, if you look at um, every survivor that we talk to, and, and you know, the statistics show that between 60 and 80% of all survivors experience this, they all look at everything in a very grounded, realistic way. At the same time, the successful people who go on to bounce forward to do remarkable things, change their lives and change the world as a result of experiencing a trauma, are those who also have what the science calls is, a, is positive illusions of control. It's a slight delusion. It's, it's um, that you are more capable of doing something than you really are. This isn't the idea that, you know, that there's uh, you know, uh, putting something out there in the universe and it's going to come back to you. What this really comes down to is that it's a sense of self-confidence. And you can see this across the board, not just with people who survive trauma, but you can look at like the um, the most successful business people in the world, the, the most successful artists out there, the most successful musicians, things like that. What they've done is they have a, a slightly delusional sense of self-confidence. This isn't to be mistaken for narcissism. This, what it really comes down to is it's a belief that, look, you know what, I'm going to try a bunch of different things. I'm going to try a bunch of different things. Granted, I know that I'm not going to get my leg back. I'm not going to get my, you know, my family back. I'm not going to, you know, the trauma has happened. Given that, you know, I'm going to try, you know, I'm going to kind of make a catalog of all the things that I can do. Um, and they can be outrageous. They can be small. And the successful people, the ones who actually really achieve some of these remarkable things that we talk about in Super Survivors, are the ones who tried a bunch of things. Many of them failed, but they had the confidence to continue to try to achieve these things, and eventually one or two of them did succeed. Um, you know, the story we talk about in the book is the one about um, a guy named Casey, and Casey was, um, he was a young kid. He was uh, driving a car. His car broke down, and so he decided to start pushing his car up the road. Um, this was in the middle of the night in a desert road, and a drunk driver swerved around the corner and hit him and pinned him against his car, and he wound up losing his leg. And he said to himself, you know, I really, you know, I want to, you know, my leg is not going to come back. I have lost my leg, but in a year, I want to, you know, I want to run a marathon. 
And that's exactly what he did. He put on a, a fake leg and he uh, prosthetic limb and uh, inline skates, and he actually became the first person to inline skate across the country um, with a prosthetic uh, skate. And now, today, he's actually a stuntman in Hollywood, and one of the more successful ones at that. He's had his leg blown off and eaten off and chewed off by aliens and, and gunshots <laughs> and, um, and, and trucks, and he's fallen out of planes, um, I think, in over 50 or 60 movies. And he did this because he, you know, he thought he would try many different things. And he tried a number of them that didn't work, but those that he did succeed at, he did well at. You you talk about the difference between accommodation and over-accommodation. It's a, in, in dealing with when we discover that the world isn't how we thought it was. And, and you bring up in Super, Survisor, Super Survivors the story of the Mythbusters experiment. Could Could you talk yes. a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's a great thing, right? So most of us, I would say, you know, many of us have this this belief, whether, you know, it's just below the surface, that we are we are safe, that the world is going to take care of us. The, the most basic, most fundamental um, belief that many people have is that the world's a good place, good things are going to happen, uh, good things happen to good people, and I'm a good person, so good things are going to happen to me. And so this is a myth that we hold on to. We call this a worldview. And when, when trauma happens, you know, what winds up happening is that our worldview just shatters. It just shatters. Um, and the ones who really bounce forward are the ones who actually embrace the idea that, okay, well, maybe the world isn't such a safe place. Maybe good things happen to good people, but also bad things can happen to good people. And I might be a good person but bad things may happen to me. Given that, what can I do? So <laughs> we, we kind of had this idea. We're like, okay, well, you know, the, uh, one's worldview is something you hold on to so tightly. Um, to change that worldview is nearly impossible. It is, it's painful. It's, it, it's basically one of the most painful things you can possibly experience because you're, you're asking yourself to change. It would be as though someone were to say to you, look, the sky you th- that you think is blue is actually green. I mean, that's how hard we hold on to these these, these personal myths. It would be as though um, someone tried to convince you that the sky is green and not blue. So what we did was we decided to talk to the Mythbusters. Why? Because the Mythbusters are guys who go out there and they try to bust myths. You know, these, these ideas that people believe and it turns out are not actually true. Um, and they try to bust these, these myths to see if they really are true or not. And so we asked them a number of different experiments um, where they went out into the world and beyond a reasonable doubt were able to prove that uh, these, uh, you know, these, uh, these phenomena were not true. Um, and in the case, well, there were two in the book. The one that's the easiest to explain is, you know, there's, we all have this, uh, we've all been on a swing set before. Well, one of the myths that people have is that you could be on a swing and someone could push you hard enough that the swing actually goes, you know, uh, 360 degrees. It goes over the bar. And so the Mythbusters, what they did was they put um, a human pound, uh, a human weighted dummy on a swing and they uh, put rockets on either side of the dummy. They ignited the rockets. And even with all that thrust behind the, um, the, the, the dummy, the swing still would not go 360 degrees over the bar. 
So they were able to prove using science and, and, uh, and math that this is impossible. And yet they still had, I think, over a thousand people write in after this episode aired um, saying, no, 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 you're obviously wrong. I, not only do I know that it works, it actually happened to me. I was on a swing set one time, and it actually someone pushed me, and I went way over the, the bar. And yet we know that's just not true. And these, these people aren't lying, and they're not delusional. They actually really truly believe that this happened to them. That's how hard we hold on to some personal myths. And when a trauma occurs, our worldview, which is our myth, will shatter. And the trick then, the challenge, is to let go of that myth, the myth that the world's a good place, that good things happen to good people, and I'm a good person, so good things are going to happen to me. And the, you know, the sooner that we're able to kind of say, okay, you know, it's not quite that simple, we're able to move on and bounce forward or change our lives. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Lee Daniel Kravitz, the co-author of Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success. Lee, you have an interesting section in the book about uh, social support called The Company We Keep. Uh, what, is, how, what is the science on social support and, and survival and mortality, and, and what are some of the counterintuitive things you learned? Sure, sure. Well, the best way to kind of go into this is to kind of explain how we we came upon this story. There was a, um, a young woman who was in a boating accident, and uh, she uh, was in a, uh, went into a coma after she uh, hit another boat with her head. And when she woke up, she had to learn to walk and to talk and to think again. And when she went under the water, she was uh, really, really, really popular. She was a, uh, a sorority uh, girl, she had a lot of friends. To know her was to love her. That's what her mother told us. And it's true. She uh, was bright and, and, and smiley and friendly and cute and, and, and just had a lot going for her and a lot of friends. But when she woke up in the hospital, um, you know, there was that initial outpouring of support, but eventually people had to go back to their own lives. And as, as one, as, as you would do, um, she found out later on that she was actually the owner of a small company called Brandables in Phoenix. It was a, a logo decal company that she had bought right before she had the accident. She didn't remember owning it. Um, but when she was back on her feet again, and many of her friends had kind of left, um, it was just her mother and her fiancé who helped her bring her business back to life. And this was during the recession uh, where many, many businesses, specifically in the greater Phoenix area, were um, uh, you know, losing money and, and going under. Her company became uh, a multi-million dollar company. It is, to this day, doing really, really well. So we asked her, you know, Amanda, how did you do this? And she said, you know, I, I just felt I had a ton of uh, social support behind me. So the surprising thing for us was that the social support, it's not a matter of how many people you have in your circle to support you, but it's, you know, how you perceive, how many, you know, how you perceive the social support around you at the time of the trauma that will help you thrive and survive after something, you know, devastating rocks your life. That was interesting when you talked about relief aid post-catastrophe and the difference between reality and, and the perception around the people who are receiving aid and what their actual emotional well-being was. It is pretty interesting, isn't it? We use the example of Haiti and how 
Um, you know, when right after the um, the earthquake uh, that that devastated the Rock Haiti, um, you know, there was millions and millions of dollars of support that came in for the first six months, and you do you know these polls to find out okay your perceived amount of support during that time, and many of the, the people. Um, you know, the Haitians said, we never really felt that kind of support. Um, it, we didn't feel supported even when we were getting all of this money and all of this attention. Um, it was actually after all of that attention left, and the organizations that stayed on the ground that continue to this day to build and to make sure that there's infrastructure there, this is years after the earthquake, um, now they feel more supported than ever, even though in reality, the majority of that support is, is has disappeared and gone on to take care of other you know tragedies all over the world. So really, I mean, maybe the the analog is the people who are showing up the first days after an accident in the hospital are not as much considered support as the 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 mother and the partner who stayed with this woman with the coma all through the time that she was building her business. That's right. You know, we find that. You know, if there's at least at least one person that's going to go above and beyond, um, you know, that that one person who will uh, convince the person who's gone through the, the traumatic experience that there will be that ongoing support for many, many weeks afterwards, that that is really the key. It's about perception over reality. And, you know, we saw this time and again, you know, as we wrote this book, is that... Um, you know, a slight sense of delusion is, is actually somewhat beneficial, whether it's a slight sense that we have more confidence that we are going to be successful in something, uh, to the delusion that maybe even just one or two people um, uh, will be enough, you know, after a trauma to really give us the support we need to move forward. I guess there'd be a flip side that if you're always feeling like it's not enough, that that would also be uh, having an effect on you. I, I think so. I think that's logical. We didn't really find that in the book so much, but the research does show that, you know, uh, social support is tremendously, tremendously important. Um, we spoke to a woman named Jane McGonigal, and Jane actually, uh, oddly enough, also had a traumatic brain injury, although not nearly as dramatic um, narratively. She bumped her head on a drawer while she was fixing a, a printer, and she uh, had a concussion. And this concussion... Um, it caused her to feel quite depressed and even suicidal. She uh, stayed inside, would not go outside. Um, she kind of uh, pushed away all of her friends. And what she did, you know, before she had the concussion, she was a game designer. That's what she did. She designed games. And so she decided, gosh, you know what? I need social support, but I can't get out of my house. I can't leave my house. I feel depressed. I feel horrible. So what she did was she created a game called Super Better that invited other people who had had concussions who also were not leaving their houses because they were uh, suffering from the same negative effects as she was. And all of these people met online in this game world, and each of them gave each other tasks to achieve. And each of these tasks, if you achieve them, you would get points like you would in any other game. Now, the great thing about these tasks were like, these are real-world tasks. So I would say to you, you know what, I know you're feeling really bad today, but I will give you five points if you just walk to your window and look outside your window for five minutes. And so more and more people started doing this and it, it, to the tunes of hundreds and then thousands of people. And um, 
there was this sense of unity, this sense of perceived ongoing support within this community. And now there's been empirical evidence to show that super better actually works. Huh. It actually uh, makes people who have concussions and uh, traumatic brain injuries, um, it makes them better. It's interesting. It's almost like the gold star on the on the chart for the kids on the wall when they're kids. There's something to there's something to this behavioral therapy. I don't know if anybody's just <laughs> uh, no. I'm just kidding. I think yeah, the, the behavioral science behind this stuff it's, it's it's fascinating and it's true. We all like to be, you know, to have that positive reinforcement, and we also like to have that that perceived support, regardless of whether or not that support is really out there. I, I venture to guess that of all the thousands of people that are playing the game super better. Uh, a small percentage, if, if any, have actually met in real life. Huh, that's really interesting. And, and near the end of the book, Super Survivors, you have a section called Making the Right Choice, and you talk about maximizers versus satisfiers. Spicers, yeah. Satisficers, right. Yeah, it's a tough one to mouthful. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, we, we kind of juxtapose these two ideas by looking at the stories of um, a woman named Asha who survived... Um, um, a trauma, only to leave her job and become a uh, uh, an internationally famous rock star. And uh, we also meet a guy named Iram, who was a a, a runner who uh, experienced. I think he had a brain tumor, and uh, he decided that he was going to uh, start running. He ran marathons. And he decided that he was going to start running marathons with his daughter in a stroller. And he actually wound up winning a marathon, um, which he had never done before. And he did it with the added weight of having uh, his daughter in a stroller. And so we started looking at some of the, the, the qualities of these two survivors. And, yeah, it all comes down to choice, right? You know, one of the cool things about having a moment, a moment where you wake up, that forces you to look at at life a little differently in the choices that you have in front of you. Um, it's a remarkable moment. Um, in each of these survivors, both these two I was just talking about and all the other ones had that moment of, of awakening where they said, gosh, you know, I nearly died. Um, now that I know that life is short, I'm going to make choices that are uh, much more intrinsically tuned to, my, uh, to myself rather than what society tells me I should do. But we find that for every choice we make, there, you know, one door opens, three more close. And so it's important to understand that there are different ways to make these choices. And some people make choices by saying, you know what, I'm going to make a choice and stick with it and not look at regret, not look at the, the you know, what that really means, uh, all the doors that are closing. Um, and some people find satisfaction in doing that. And other people... Um, they go after every choice that comes their way. And there's no right or wrong here. But it, 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 you have to kind of wrap your head around the idea that for every choice you make, other choices and other th- you're, there are things you're, you have to give up. And that there's no um, uh, you know, magic bullet that just makes life better for everybody just, just because you made one choice over another. Lee, we're almost out of time. Do you have a website you could point our listeners to? Absolutely. So it's www.supersurvivors.com. So it's all one word, supersurvivors.com. Great. Well, thanks for being on Health Watch today. 
It has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. We are talking today with Lee Daniel Kravitz, the co-author of Super Survivors, The Surprising Link Between Suffering and Success. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm David Naiman, your host.